Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and we're joined today by Dr. Michael Ralph, Associate Professor at NYU in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis. Dr. Ralph teaches classes titled Histories of Capitalism, Hip-Hop and Politics, Digital Humanities, and Armed Resistance, and he just released a fascinating data set where he dug through rare books, historical documents to create the most comprehensive mapping of slave insurance policies ever created. Dr. Ralph, Michael, I, I hope I did that that justice there. Um, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Uh, you did a great job. First of all, I just want to say to our listeners out there, this is actually the first live studio recording. So, <laughs> Mike, Michael, thank you so much for, for coming on. Can you tell our listeners um, what your project entailed, what inspired you to, to really get started with it, and what the reception to that has been? Um, yeah, thank you. First, I'm honored to be here, and, and I'm happy to be here first uh, in-studio guest. Uh, the project started when I was actually doing research for my dissertation project, my doctoral dissertation, which became a book. It's called Forensics of Capital. And in many ways, the book is sort of um, a political theory, political history of Senegal and West Africa. The essential argument of the book is that um, any country's diplomatic profile is also a forensic profile and a credit profile. I would say the same for individuals, that a person's social profile is in part a credit profile and then also a forensic profile. And as I was conducting research, you know, the research was both historical, like archival and ethnographic. And as I was interviewing young people who were leaving Senegal to, leave, to um, go abroad for employment, I was really interested in young people who wanted to play basketball overseas. It's like a really um, big trend in Senegal now. Um, and there are a lot of Senegalese men and women who play college basketball in Canada and the United States in particular, and increasingly in the NBA. Um, but I was interested in this question of how do you decide how much an athlete's skills are worth? An athlete's, you know, how do you think much, how much an athlete is worth? And I was reading a lot of stuff about slavery, um, insurance, any kind of domain in which someone is trying to price a person's skill set or a person's body um, to decide how much a person is valued. And um, I noticed as I read histories of insurance and of life insurance that historians of life insurance typically made a distinction between um, slave insurance and life insurance. They would say slaves are property, which is different than life insurance. Um, and so I, I was intrigued by this and started looking at slave insurance policies. And I noticed that um, the skill set an enslaved person had had a lot to do with that person's value in the insurance policy. That was the basis for the value in that, in fact... Um, you know, there are slaves who were valuable in the marketplace who sold a lot, at, sold for a lot of money at auctions, but were not insured. So I was interested in, like, how do they decide to insure an enslaved person? And um, what you notice is that when a slave is insured, usually that person has some kind of premium skill set, what's understood to be a premium skill set. Often it's associated with certain kinds of very lucrative industries and often dangerous industries. So, like, coal mining, blacksmiths, um, enslaved people who worked on railroads, uh, on steamboats, enslaved people who had managed households for generations or for decades. So either it was some kind of artisan, like a, a cooper, a cobbler, blacksmith, or someone who worked in a really lucrative and really dangerous industry. So in many ways, um, it, was, it didn't quite fit the narrative that slaves were just property because no other kind of property could accrue value over time based on skills that are acquired or learned, right? So there was That's a, way, a very uniquely human trait right, to be like, able to acquire skills. Exactly. So essentially the basis for the value in the slave insurance policy is human ingenuity, human expertise, human skill. 
And so that defied um, the way that property insurance typically works. And it also was somewhat similar to um, industrial insurance or it, it was shared something with life insurance because obviously life insurance is probably based on um, insuring against the loss of future wages, right? Like that the person's uh, skills or labor will generate income in the future. And so that's why you take out a policy in the case of um, if un- unexpected death. Um, and so there's similar logic at work in slave insurance to some extent. The, obviously, there's a big difference in that life insurance um, is often based on life tables, and the slave's mortality wasn't calculated in the same way according to the same kind of measure. But in terms of the skill set, that was the basis for the value of the policy in slave insurance. And so it was not the case that slaves were merely viewed as property. They were also seen as highly skilled workers when they were insured. So I think that's that's fascinating in for folks listening, the the whole project can be found at treasuryofwearysouls.com. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes, that's right. Um, and, and I was – I just found myself going deeper and deeper and deeper into that website. Um, and what was perhaps most surprising to me as I was looking at the data map that you created – is that there are modern financial services companies that we know today, like AIG or Aetna, for example, um, who are still very much around, and they had underwritten policies for for slavery insurance in the 1800s. I guess my question to you is, have these companies commented on your work or reached out to you in any way? Uh, thanks for that question. Well, no one has, none of these firms has contacted me directly. Um, at an earlier moment, I I had published a, a very brief um, article along with some maps that were done by our cartographer, Bill Rankin, um, about uh, slave insurance uh, for foreign policy. And after we published that, one of the companies um, contacted foreign policy to sort of clarify the fact that uh, although the company had a different name at the time when those policies were taken out and that they were trying to draw a distinction between what had happened in the antebellum period and the present. And you know, I just want to point out that like AIG in its earlier incarnation was U.S. Life, uh, New York Life was Nautilus, and that Aetna acquired a lot of policies after the antebellum period. So, you know, two of the companies would would. Probably so they're so they're not the same. It, well, it's, it's not like well, the same iteration, but it's the same kind. It's it is the same company legally speaking. Right. So these two of the companies are are the same legally speaking, as in an incarnation of the same corporate entity, and um, but all three of them still hold the value of those policies. So they, in some cases, acquired companies after emancipation, and those companies they acquired had had policies. Um, and insuring enslaved people. So, you know, if they, you know, the, the way that insurance, life insurance has unfolded, most life insurance companies don't survive. So, a lot of companies from the antebellum period that insured enslaved people no longer exist and they were purchased and acquired by um, larger corporate entities. But, you know, whenever someone tries to suggest that these aren't the same companies, my first question is, well, do they keep the money though, right? So if they still... That's a great point. Yeah, they took the value of the policies, then you can't take the value of the policy and not want to be associated with that business. So um, I, I think you can't have it both ways, but it is interesting. Um, no one has contacted me directly, although I suspect at some point there will be some um, engagement around that. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think... Um, for me, the work is really important at many different levels. You know, I had 
struggled with what to call the site for a while. And for a long time, I was referring to it as Slave Insurance Treasury. But then I thought that felt just a little too detached, a little too financial. And although I wanted to emphasize the financial aspect of it, I also thought to myself, well, these are people's ancestors. These are there's a human toll. There's a human, there's a human, human toll. And so I thought, okay, these are souls. You know, these are people who existed. And weariness struck me as an important way to talk about it because um, the idea of weariness suggests fatigue, exhaustion, labor, that you've sort of grown weary from um, having worked at some kind of enterprise or in some kind of capacity. And so, you know, these are people who worked incredibly hard in their respective industries and respective enterprises. And I thought that like a treasury of weary souls sort of captures what's at stake. I think it's a beautiful name and I, I think it's really appropriate. Thank you. Um, I want to kind of take your perspective of valuing labor in the 1800s. And you mentioned sports. Mm -hmm. And I want to fast forward to where we are today. Um, this wasn't on my list of questions, but I want to dive into it with you. We have a president that routinely attacks black commentators, black athletes, um, any sort of black celebrity. And what we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement and with Colin Kaepernick um, kneeling for the national anthem, I'm curious how you perceive all of that happening in the current context, knowing what you know about the historical context. Yeah, I appreciate that question. I think, um, you know, the critics of, say, Kaepernick or other attempts by athletes to draw attention to political issues might say, well, sports shouldn't be politicized. That sports is an escape, it's entertainment, it's fun. But not only is sports often sort of explicitly invoked in various ways in political conversations. I mean, think about how political the event, the Olympics are, right? Like the Olympics and various World Cup, other kinds of sporting events. Well, we're seeing the attempt at diplomacy right. over in South Korea right now. Exactly. So Olympics right. and sports are inherently political. Right. So sports are often invoked in various kind of nationalist arguments. They're often uh, forms of diplomacy, as you say. Their um, ideas about um, political triumph, think about like the Nazi discourse on on their Olympic athletes and the significance of Jesse Owens' um, historic achievements. But I would also say that you know we're talking about labor and skill and expertise, and sports has also often been the domain in which people discuss a given person or group's potential, right? Like, is a given mm -hmm. group or person capable of this or that, right? And you see these dis you see these discourses from society more broadly bleeding into sports and, and vice versa. So, like, then, you know, why is it that so many teams have historically had white quarterbacks but not black quarterbacks, right? The quarterback is the on-field captain of the team, so to speak, and there's just kind of either an implicit, at times explicit notion that a white person is going to be better at that job. Um, there's something really funny that happened some years ago where the head coach of the Navy football team had said, um, you know, his team didn't do it nearly as well as expected, he said, oh, yeah, well, I guess we just need some more speed. I need to recruit more black players. And people got really upset. Whoa. Right. He got, people got really upset. But what's interesting about that statement is that he had associated black players with speed, right? So there's assumptions about their biology, physiology. There's assumptions about intelligence. You know, there, there are often associations between certain racial or ethnic groups and certain sports. Like certain groups are going to be better at this or that sport than other groups. So sports is often a domain in which people are working out race, ideas of race, and gender, sexuality, ability. Um, and so 
sports can't be separated from the broader way a group or a person is understood in, in society. So um, it just makes sense then that the same kinds of conversations you're having about a group in society are going to be happening in sports. I mean, I, I like to watch tennis, and I'm always intrigued by the way that black tennis players are described as athletic or enthusiastic, or they're talked about as having fun, and great white players are, they're like robots, they're machine, they're calculating, they're precise, you know, all kinds of ideas. But a black athlete succeeds just sort of associated with muscular ability, enthusiasm, gusto, or some innate ability, athleticism, you know, whereas often white players are seen to be um, really astute and insightful and calculating. So I think all the, everything you would want to say about a given group in terms of race and broader notions of race and as I, said, as I said before, you know, ability, gender, sexuality, um, national belonging, these things show up in discourses of sports as well. So I, I could talk sports with you all day <laughs> long, but I want to get to some of the more um, recent events um, and talk a little bit about the Parkland school shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a great piece in Teen Vogue this week about how black teens have actually been calling for gun control for years Um, but only recently after the Parkland shooting when these really inspiring and amazing survivors used the platform to speak up, um, has the media and the public at large really embraced the idea and the call to action. So I guess what I want to ask is when you look at the, the differing response and the juxtaposition between how the media covered the Black Lives Matter movement to the movement for March for Our Lives and Never Again. Um, how does that land on you? Yeah, I think actually um, I would agree with that. And I think Teen Vogue does amazing reporting, and I, I appreciate their many important journalistic contributions. Um, I would agree with that, and I guess I'm not surprised at, at all. I think that, um, you know, it's important to point out, right? And I think that uh, it's part of a broader fact that um, young black children are just viewed differently often socially, legally as well, right? Mm-hmm. So like... Um, They're more frequently tried as adults in right, the justice system. Exactly, and uh, even the their treatment of them, right? So like people have pointed out that the way the Parkland shooter was even arrested was very sort of calm and modest. He was taken right? alive. Right, he was taken alive and he was just sort of, you know... Dylan Roof also right. after having committed a mass shooting. Right, but then like, you know... They're young black people who've been unarmed and, you know, killed on site either with toy guns, like in the case of Tamir Rice, or just some idea, an an officer mistakenly thought the person was armed, or just, you know, or the person might They don't even wait with Philando Castile in Minnesota. Right, right. um, So, yeah, I think uh, we're sort of used to this discrepancy in journalistic coverage, we're used to this discrepancy in policing, and yet it is important to point out this discrepancy because, you know, it sort of begs the question, like, if this is understood to be a free society, what accounts for this discrepancy? And because people are so quick to to point to isolated examples about how a society might be improving around race relations, these discrepancies are helpful reminders that, you know, as much as some things may change, other things remain the same. Sometimes things can even get worse, right? So people ought to be vigilant about whether or not groups are being treated equally. So one proposal to prevent mass shootings in schools is to make the schools more militarized, to put more officers in schools, to arm the teachers, um, increasing surveillance, installing metal detectors. What do you think about 
this proposal and strategy? Well, I think um, what the the school shootings reveal is that um, taking care of a gun is a tremendous responsibility and that it requires a lot of care and consideration and training to handle a lethal weapon properly. Uh, I think it's a terrible idea to just increase the number of guns in any context without a lot of attention to care and training, a lot of deliberation about what's at stake, and about a, con- a serious conversation about priorities. And obviously what most schools need is um, great teachers and great resources and a sort of dedication to inspiring young people to perform their best. And and guns um, are not at all likely to make a school safer or to enhance sort of learning opportunities and outcomes. And, you know, everything that troubles us about American society more broadly um, is only likely to be heightened in a school where there are guns present, right? Like, people have pointed out statistically that even um, when there's domestic violence in a household, if a gun is present, um, a person, and usually a woman, is more likely to be killed in what would otherwise be a dangerous or violent scenario, but not necessarily a fatal one, right? So we can then imagine that school um, altercations, which, you know, might usually result in fights or something, could then turn fatal. We can imagine that racist discrimination against teachers, you know, by ways by teachers, which is sort of problematic and offensive and troubling and dehumanizing and it undermines uh, a child's opportunities to learn, but those situations could turn fatal, right? So I think it would be disastrous to just introduce guns to schools. Um, it would almost as, make it more like a prison and less right, like a school. Right. But, you know, and it's, a, it's a great point you make, and I think actually there are plenty of people who think it's appropriate that some schools be more like prisons because I think that speaks to the expectations for the people who go there, you know? Mm. Um, like in the documentary Time is Omatic about Nas, the rapper Nas's life and career, um, his father, Oludar, talks about how he let Nas and his brother leave school, at, let Nas leave school after eighth grade because the school was like prison. He went to, he took him to school and he was struck by the presence of police officers and metal detectors. And and then, in fact, there was, like, in many ways, a, a school-to-prison pipeline in the many low-income neighborhoods. And it's as if, like, sending a child to that kind of school is the most efficient way to prepare that child for a life in, incarcerated. And so it is, in fact, empirically the case that some schools have become school-to-prison pipe, part of a school-to-prison pipeline, in which case, you know, if if someone is comfortable with that or even prefers that, then of course they may not have a problem with the school being a lot like a, a prison or like a sort of some kind of um, carceral facility. But um, if what you think a school should be about is preparing someone for a career or for a happy, healthy life, um, to help someone appreciate and realize his or her or their potential, you know, if that's what you think a school is about, then you wouldn't make guns a priority. What What was the name of that documentary? Oh, the documentary is Time Is Illmatic. Time is Illmatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, I saw a great tweet the other day about the gun control debate, um, and it was a hypothetical scenario. It was from a father. He said, hypothetically speaking, your child brings a stick to school and beats another kid. Do you do A, B, or C, multiple choice? Do you give everybody sticks? Do you give 20% of people sticks so that the ones who are good with sticks can defend the ones who are not good with sticks, 
or do you take the stick away? And I, it's so clear to me when I think about that scenario, just replace stick with gun mm-hmm. and just take away the gun. Mm-hmm. I think it's so simple. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think that uh, the idea of gun ownership in uh, American society is an important conversation to have. I think, you know, I, the idea of putting more guns in schools, I find really troubling. The, the idea of guns on college campuses, um, you know, legislation that encourages or allows guns on college campuses or in parks. There, you know, states where they're promoting legislation to have guns in, like, even parks, public facilities. Um that I find often really disturbing. I think it's an important conversation to have about, you know, whether gun ownership should be legal. You know, in New York, we are sort of in something of a bubble, I think, because um, ordinary citizens are not allowed to have guns, and so it's kind of beside the point for most of us. I think in other parts of the country, people have to contend with the fact that, you know, significant parts of the population are armed um, or, or really want the right, embrace the right to be armed, and could potentially be armed. And I think in those places, it's an important conversation. And I think, especially on the left, it's an important conversation to have. You know, I think it's, you know, in the armed resistance class, one of the questions I pose is why is it that in the 60s and 70s, um, civil rights and the freedom movements saw themselves as being in league with countries fighting for their liberation from colonialism? And in those contexts, you know, being armed was just part of self-defense. It was part of common sense. It wasn't violence. It was just sort of logical, right? Like there were people, many sort of prominent civil rights leaders were subject to death threats and things like that. And so there was kind of a conversation, you know. Um, journalists have talked about um, going to interview Martin Luther King Jr. and being struck by how many guns he had around him and how many people were armed to protect him. And although we have the idea of MLK as being peaceful, um, his life was always under threat. So he, in many ways, had to defend himself. Um, and so I think it's an interesting conversation that now it seems as if only the right, on the right side, the conservative sort of side of the political spectrum, there's a lot of interest in investment in guns. And on the left, um, there isn't apparently that interest. By many people, there's sort of um, an assumption that guns are bad. And I think um, that's kind of terrifying situation that everyone on the right stockpiles guns and everyone on the left doesn't have any. So there are plenty of reasons to have a sort of meaningful conversation about it, but I definitely think that the idea of reducing school violence by introducing more guns is misguided. I would agree with that. And and I would just clarify my previous comments by saying, don't take away all guns, (laughs) but AR-15s, I mean, there's a reason that a civilian can't go buy a tank or a ballistic missile. I mean, there are limits to a well-regulated militia as laid out in the Second Amendment. Um, Obviously, we're we're not trying to repeal the Second Amendment. I hope hope people are aware of that. Um, So so now I want to transition and kind of ask your take on the state of politics at large in its connection to college campuses. Mm. Um, You did your advanced degrees at University of Chicago, is is that correct? That's right, yes. Um, And I assume you were a professor during Obama's administration and in his time. Um, Do you see a difference in the way that students are approaching politics and activism compared to the Obama administration now that we're in the Trump era? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, yes, I do. Um, I think I've seen um, students' perspectives on politics change quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of enthusiasm uh, around Obama during his first um, campaign, 
first presidential campaign and um, excitement about the potential. I think, um, you know, at NYU we attract, uh, often students are very progressive, very knowledgeable, and many of them were disappointed actually by um, sort of Obama's presidency after the first term instead of hoped for more at the second term. You know, just feeling like he was not doing as much as he could for certain marginal populations. Um, you know, I think most people were supportive of Obama, but thought they wanted him to be more ambitious. And obviously, he was sort of trying to um, proceed cautiously and embrace. He had to toe a fine line right. with what he could right. and couldn't do. Right. So most people realized that. And so, you know, I think the the least generous critics were sort of somewhat disappointed, but the most generous critics appreciated some of his tremendous accomplishments, including, including I would say, like, you know, the Lilly Ledbetter Equal Pay Act and the um, Affordable Care Act and you know, they're, they're and sort of drawing attention to disproportionate sentencing and this these kinds of issues I think were huge. Um, you know, I'm still um, amazed at just how traumatic, you could say, um, people experienced, both students and faculty experienced uh, Trump's election. Um, you know, it was, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like a kind of, it's visceral. Very visceral, a, a pervasive atmosphere of dismay, um, of frustration, of, of sadness. People, like, were weeping, you know, crying, um, just deeply troubled. People were almost kind of nihilistic at times, sort of wondering, um, like, what they could possibly hope to achieve or what could come of the country. Or people were, you know, scared, and for good reason, obviously, like, um, we think about how devastating ice raids are. We think about, you know, I think for some people say mass incarceration could be an abstract issue, but think of all the families torn apart by, you know, imprisonment and things like that. So all the issues that Trump exacerbates, right, um, are sort of acutely painful for many families. And, you know, many of our students just have diminished prospects for education and employment, right? Like some students were worried if they left the country to visit their families, would they be able to get back? Sure. You know, and some sometimes weren't able to come back. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's been devastating for many people in many ways. I've also seen um, a tremendous swell of enthusiasm for political engagement. Mm. Um, it's as if uh, people... Um, people see their political lives as intimately engaged with every other aspect of their lives, right? So, like, you know, I think prior to Trump's election on campus, I would say that there were professors or students who were politically engaged and others not as much. And now there's kind of a general assumption that anyone with any sense is engaged in somehow trying to make some kind of contribution to making the U.S. a more progressive society. Like, that's sort of taken for granted now, right? And... It's a part of the way people talk, the way people teach, people learn, the way people talk about their career aspirations. And, you know, I don't want to sort of paint too kind of utopic a picture about it because obviously everything that was wrong with American society before Trump's election is still with us in some form. But I would say that it, it was kind of an awakening. It was kind of a reorientation. It was kind of like, a, I don't know, um, it sort of forced people to try to clarify the stakes of their political projects, of their lives, of their career aspirations. And so um, I think what has come out of it is a really sort of reinvigorated um, political movement. You know, a lot of people are sort of 
dedicated in an unprecedented way, you know, in a way they had not experienced before in life, to various kinds of intersecting political causes. Are you optimistic about the midterm elections? Yeah, I'm very optimistic about the midterm elections and just about the trajectory of the country as a whole. I think that um, the best thing that we can do is just be clear about um, the sources of empowerment in our lives and the sources um, that seek to confound us, right? Like, What do you mean by that? So I think um, when we see, like, conversations about reproductive rights, you know, like, let's say people want to abolish um, Planned Parenthood or something like that. It just becomes, Certainly people do. Right, Those right. people exist in the right. United States. And I would say that some of those people just don't believe women have the right to decide what they want to do with their bodies. And so, we, so we might say, like, well, if what's so bad with Planned Parenthood, essentially what they do is provide health care services. And unless you don't think women have the right to control their own bodies, you would support that. I think some people just don't think women have the right to control their own bodies. I think some people don't think African Americans are capable of learning in the same way other groups are. And so, like, since that is the case, it's important to be aware of that. I think it's actually dangerous to, say, send your children to school and presume that all the teachers are invested in your child's flourishing or something mm-hmm. like that. I think, in fact, you have to try to discern, okay, is this environment one that's likely to be encouraging and uplifting or not? You know, and I think as sad as it may be, it is important. You know, I think it's important in, for And some might be more unconscious than others. Right. Unconscious biases yeah, come yeah, into yeah. play every day for everybody. Right, exactly. And so I think, you know, like a lot of people aren't... Like some people think of... Um, their stance on an issue or a group as being, say, a religious stance or something like that, but are not aware of um, the fact that they can restrict economic, political possibilities for that group, right? Like, if you ask people about same-sex marriage, they may talk about um, what their religious text says or doctrine or what they hear from their pastors. But if you were to say, okay, well, do you think that two people who've been together for decades ought to be able to share each other's wealth if one of them passes away? Or should they be able to share each other's benefits? Or can they raise a child together legally, right? If you and then you, you say, reframe it in right. that context. Right, and I'm not saying it should be restricted to that context, but I think that they're not aware that, say, their bias or their bigotry comes with sort of all kinds of restrictions that make life miserable for people or that make people suffer or that make it hard for people to do very normal things that they take for granted. And I think, mm. so that's all I mean is that it's important to be clear about... Um, what opportunities there are for you to flourish and what opportunities there are sort of more challenging. Um, you know, but I think, so So I think that there, today we have conversations, like when Betsy DeVos is Secretary of Education, it's a lot easier to have frank and candid conversations about whether education policy in the U.S. is likely to help all children, right? When Jeff Sessions is Attorney General, it's easier to talk about disproportionate sentencing and just sort of a kind of, um, racist attitudes that are intertwined and, and sort of structural racism as tied to surveillance and policing. And I'm not saying it's preferable to have those people in place. I'm just saying that um, the kinds of conversations we've been having lately are the kinds of conversations we need to have and the kinds of conversations that we should have been having for a long time. But mm-hmm. at least we can have them now, and no matter what happens going forward, we should continue to have them. But I will say, yeah, I feel very optimistic because I feel like, you know, the public, including the important work you're doing on this show, like raising public awareness, educating the public, that's the best thing people can do, right? It's like learn as much as you can about an issue, explore from different perspectives, um, you know, um, have critical conversations with the people you care about and with other people about these issues. And I think 
that's happening a lot more now, and it's really important. All right, so I built you up. You're optimistic <laughs> for 2018. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to throw you a curveball. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. So recently, um, the Anti-Defamation League released a report on the spread of white nationalism mm-hmm. on college campuses. Um, white supremacist groups are very effectively targeting young white Americans, um, and we're seeing kind of a spread of of white nationalist propaganda, especially from these larger media outlets on the right, Infowars, Breitbart, The Daily Stormer, these these folks have a following. So so my question to you, um, the report said that, you know, the the white supremacist propaganda on college campuses increased by over 250% uh, between fall 2016 and fall 2017. So so my question to you is, what do you make of this? Um, and do you think it's going to get worse? Um. I can't say whether I, I think it will get worse, I, and I tend not to sort of try to like prognosticate. But I will say, um, white nationalism. Well, I think that white nationalism has been around, you know, as long as the founding of the U.S. in some form. Hmm. I think that it may seem to kind of ebb and flow. It may seem to grow or diminish. I think that it, you know, for me, um, it is it is something important for say like progressive political projects to contend with. I think though that like the key is it kind of rests on some very fundamental questions like do you think all people are equal or not? Apparently white nationalists do not think that. But do progressives think that, right? If indeed progressives think that, then our schools should reflect that. Like education policy should reflect that. Um our employment scenarios should reflect that. You know, I think sometimes about um like being at NYU, like Okay, only certain people like deans or chairs of departments get to sort of find out probably what the entire department makes, or maybe the president of the university. And we know that like women are often um, pay like 70 cents on a dollar to men. And there's an easy way to find out if you're a president of a university, if that's happening. You could just ask for the, that data, pull it up, and you could say, well, if in fact women are paid 70 cents on a dollar to men, I'll change that. I'll make sure all men and women are paid equal based on um, their performance or on their rank. But people don't do that, you know? And so the question I have is then, well, you know, I I can't, I can't, I don't exactly know what to do in response to the, to the growth of white nationalism except to say something like, we should be fighting for a world that's more equal and more fair. Those of us who believe such a thing is a good thing, right? But in fact, I think the biggest, um, the biggest impediment to fighting white nationalism is the lack of a sort of coherent political stance on the left, actually, right? Like I would say something like, you have a kind of indifference on the left and you have white nationalism. And so the Justice Project is undermined by that. But I, I don't think, I think white nationalism... Do you really think there's an indifference on the left? Yeah, I do, I do. So, so, so I think there are various forces on the left that make, that allow white nationalism to, to grow in a way that it would not otherwise be able to grow. So, for instance, like, um, like I think what I'm trying to say is that I think that if, the, if we see a reinvigorated left white nationalism would be puny in the face of that. But what I think is that there's too many ways in which progressive movements become complicit with the project of white nationalism. So if we think about schools in New York, for instance, right, like most people um, want their children to get into good schools, right, whether that's a private school or a charter school. And they're sort of aware of the fact that public schools in low-income neighborhoods don't have teachers that are dedicated, don't have resources, um, have outdated curricula, they're aware of school-to-prison pipelines, but they don't necessarily approach those issues with a lot of urgency. Um, we're aware of, the, of discrepancies in health care and various things like that. 
But people who aren't faced with those situations don't approach those issues with urgency. But if, like, whole swaths of the population aren't able to learn, aren't able to get medical treatment, aren't able to thrive, then it essentially looks like the world that white nationalists claim it is, which is, like, these other people aren't capable, they're not fit to compete. But if, in fact, we dedicated ourselves to building a world in which people had resources and access, and then when we do that, we see that people thrive, it sort of proves the lie of white nationalism, right? So I think that, I can't, you know, I think if anything, like our lack of building a more fair and just world is making white nationalism too often look like there's something to it. But in fact, like, if we allow people to achieve what they're capable of, we don't have to even worry about that as much because there won't be much for them to say or do. It'll just be the lie we've proven, you know? Um, So, I mean, that's just how I think of it. But I think that, you know, there that is a kind of mobilization that's happening that just proves how important it is to be mobilized, you know. Um, it also, I think, though, um, I guess what I find most troubling about white nationalism and the growth of it is just those situations in which it is tied to, like, law enforcement. You know, the, it's really alarming mm. when you see, you know, it revealed that law enforcement or elected officials are in uh, white nationalist groups and things like that, you know. That's where it becomes even more insidious. But, you know, I guess I think the, this at the heart of it all, it's sort of two things, right? Like the source of white nationalism sort of comes down to two things. It seems like one is um, people who are just ignorant, right? They don't know. Um, like their, their facts, they're being sort of misguided, brainwashed. Their facts are all wrong. Or they might live in an isolated area right, where they right. don't know anybody that's different from them. Right. But the other aspect of it is strategic, you know, that some people are well aware of the fact that all people are equal. It just, they just see it as a kind of form of competition that, like, they want to promote the interests of one group rather than another. And either way, I just think that the best antidote to that is policy that um, essentially saves people from themselves by creating scenarios in which all people get the chance to thrive. You know? Awesome. Professor, thank you so much for <laughs> the fascinating conversation. Um, lastly, if people want to learn more about you and your work, mm-hmm. how can they find you? Uh, so website, um, www.michaelralph.org. And they can just go there and just see probably some up to and things like that. Great. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Be sure to continue the conversation with us on social media at Millen Politics. Check out our website and merchandise in our store at millennialpolitics.co. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Stay tuned for our next episode and a very special shout out to Acme Hall Studios. Mm-hmm.